It's wonderful for us to be able to meet together as life groups for the first time in this new season as Harvest Church. And uh, I'm just excited to be able to lead us all into more of the study of God's Word tonight. Uh, we're going to be just continuing straight on in Romans. We're going to be moving on into chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses in Romans chapter 9. There is so much in these verses that uh, I'm really going to be going through it quite quickly um, so that we can get it through in the time that we have allotted to us. Uh, but what I'm wanting to do as I do go through it is I really want to stir up some conversation and discussion amongst yourselves. Um, and so that's really the purpose of what we're doing. I want to facilitate uh, discussion and study of God's Word. Paul begins this new section in this letter, which is from chapter 9 through to chapter 11. Three whole chapters that Paul has devoted to this uh, section that we're going to be beginning tonight. What we need to realize is that these chapters are not unrelated to all that Paul has written beforehand, but rather they're a, con a continuation of it. In this section, Paul is going to do three things. Number one, he's going to answer a monumental question. And this question arises because of all that he's been sharing up to this point, particularly that which he shared towards the end of chapter 8. And secondly, he's going to prove that what he is saying is true. In other words, when he, he, he's going to answer that monumental question and then he's going to prove that the answer he gives is true and he's going to use the Old Testament to prove it. And that's why in these next three chapters, you will see Paul constantly quoting from the Old Testament. And then the third thing he's going to do in this section is he's going to defend his answer to this monumental question against objections that he knows are going to arise because of the answer he's going to give to this question. So let's move on without any delay and let's look at the question Paul is going to answer in this section of this letter. This is the question. If God chooses people according to His purpose from before the foundation of the world and predestines them for salvation and calls them to faith in Jesus Christ, as He told us in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30, and nothing can thwart His purpose, as Paul told us in Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39, then why are His chosen people, Israel, still in unbelief, and therefore, according to all that He's been saying in the previous parts of the letter, not saved? That's the question Paul is going to answer in this section of Scripture. So let's begin looking at Paul's answer to this question today. And we're going to be starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. I'm going to break this passage that we're going to look at tonight, which is from verse 1 to verse 13, up into three sections. The first one is from verses 1 to 5, which really covers Paul's sorrow and grief over Israel's rejection of the gospel and of Christ himself. The second one is from verses 6 to 7, which is Paul giving his answer to the question that we've just posed. And then the third one is verses 8 to 13, where he explains his answer and goes back into the Old Testament to give the reason why this is true. His answer is true. So let's start and let's begin reading in verse 1. Paul says, I'm telling the truth. In Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies me with me in the Holy Spirit. 
that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. There's so much that we could unpack just in this particular, these particular few verses. But what I want to show you here, first of all, is what we see is before Paul starts to answer this question that he's going to be answering in this section, he shows his humanity. He bears his humanity for every one of us who reads this to see. And this is important for us to both see and consider. And we'll talk more about this towards the end of this session. What we also need to see here is how determined Paul is to ensure that his readers uh, realize that he's not using hyperbole here. That when he describes this great sorrow and unceasing grief that he has in his heart over the Israelites and over their rejection of the gospel, he is not exaggerating. One of the reasons for this is that Paul was considered by many Jews, including some who were believers in Christ, to be against the law of God, against the Jewish culture, and a traitor of the Jewish people because of what he taught, because of the gospel that he preached. Paul had such deep concern for the Israelites, even though they did not consider him to, to be even a part of their nation. They, they considered him a traitor. Paul, in everything that he taught, was not because he was anti-Israel. It was not because he was anti-the Jewish people. It was because it was the truth. That's the reason he taught it. And he had this feeling even for those who rejected the gospel. And not only so, he felt this way about his brothers, his kinsmen according to the flesh, despite their hostility to him as a person. And uh, this really reveals the very heart and nature of Christ in the Apostle Paul. And we'll talk a bit more about this as we, 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 we begin to look at how this passage of Scripture can be applied to our own lives. We also need to note that Paul did not deny the highly favored and privileged position God had given to the Israelites. He didn't do that. What does he say here? He says, to them belongs the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. He says, theirs is the fathers, and from them is the Christ according to the flesh. And so he lists here eight incredible privileges that God had given to the Israelites that He had given to no other nation. By all accounts, if anyone is to be saved, surely it's the people of Israel. Yet according to Paul's gospel, they weren't saved. How could this be? How could it be that the people that the adoption of sons belongs to, that the glory belongs to, that the covenants belong to, the giving of the law, the temple service, the promises, those that come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those from whom the Christ comes in terms of his flesh, how can they not be saved? That's the question Paul is looking at. Had God's word and promises failed? Had his purpose 
for Israel being thwarted by their unbelief? Let's look at Paul's answer to this question. We find it right here in the first part of verse 6. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And so Paul states right here that in, despite this happening, despite the fact that there were Israelites to whom all these things belonged that were not saved does not mean God's word had failed. And then we move on and he begins to tell us his explanation of his answer. This begins in the second half of verse 6. Let's read uh, from there. He says, For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's seed. And then he says at the end of verse 7, But through Isaac your seed will be named. Okay, so what is he talking about here? Well, he's actually reminding the people of what he said earlier on in the beginning of this letter, right back in chapter 2, where he said that a Jew is not one outwardly, and that circumcision is not the circumcision that is outward in the flesh, but a Jew is one that, who is inwardly a Jew, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Okay, do you remember that he said that? I think it's in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. And so what Paul is saying here is that people's natural birth has no bearing. Their natural ancestry has no bearing on their salvation, on whether God considers them to be in his people or not. People are not saved because of their ancestry. So what we see here is we see Paul pointing back to the very inception of the Jewish nation to prove this. First of all, he says, look at what it says back in Genesis. It says there that when God spoke to Abraham, he said, through Isaac, your seed will be named or will be counted or will be considered through Isaac. And then he carries on in verse 8 and he says, the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are considered as seed. For this is the word of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. He says, first of all, even though Abraham had two sons, only Isaac was chosen by God. Ishmael, Abraham's other son, did not inherit God's promises and covenants and all the other things that Paul mentioned in the previous verses. He was cut off from all of that, despite the fact that he was a son of Abraham, despite the fact that he was circumcised. So Paul is pointing back to the matter of Isaac and Ishmael and saying, look at what happened. Not all of Abraham's descendants are to be considered Abraham's children, spiritually speaking. And only those that are considered Abraham's children, spiritually speaking, will inherit the promises and the covenants and all the things that God has promised to Abraham. So he uses Isaac and Ishmael as an example. And he shows us here that it is not the children of the flesh that inherit the promises of God. It's not those that are only born of the flesh that inherit the promises of God. It is those who are born of God. It is the children of promise, like Isaac was. 
Isaac was a child of promise. Isaac was not born because of Abraham's will or uh, anything that Abraham did. He was born because God gave Abraham a promise. And as a result, Isaac was the, was the consequence of the miraculous involvement of God. It reminds me of what the Lord told Nicodemus in John chapter 3, where he said to Nicodemus, and I tell you the truth, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And when Nicodemus asked him, well, how can a man when he is old be born a second time, enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born again? Jesus said, I tell you, he just reiterated it. He said, I tell you, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so what we see there is that it's not enough for someone just to be born a Jew. And remember, Nicodemus was a Jew. What was the Lord saying to him? The Lord was saying to Nicodemus there, he was saying to him that unless he was born again, unless he was born from above, unless there was a supernatural birth that came from God in his life, a new birth, he could not see or enter the kingdom of God. This brings us to the second example that Paul brings out here in this passage. It starts in verse 10, where he now talks about Esau and Jacob, the next generation after Isaac. And this is what he says. He says, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that the purpose of God according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Both these boys were born of the same father and mother. In the case of Isaac, someone might have argued and said, well, the reason God chose Isaac and not Ishmael is because Isaac was born um, of Sarah, whereas Ishmael was born of the maidservant. Uh, they didn't have the same mother, even though Abraham was their father, and that's why God chose Isaac. And so Paul takes it another level uh, on in the genealogy of the nation of Israel and shows or gives an example of these two twin boys that were born of the same father and mother of Isaac and Rebekah. These boys were both twins. And yet Paul says here, God chose Jacob, but not Esau. And even though Esau was the older and would have been considered to be the natural one that God should have cho chosen, according to man's thinking, God chose the younger just to show that God's choice is not according to what man says it should be or what man thinks it should be. And then we also see here, Paul says God's choice of Jacob had nothing to do with anything that Jacob did. And God's rejection of Esau had nothing to do with anything that Esau did. God chose them before they were even born. We can see that not all who are Abraham's descendants are children of the promise or the elect of God. And so, if not all who are Israel are Israel, if not everyone who is the seed of Abraham is actually the seed of Abraham, then it shows that God's word has not failed. And this is what Paul is showing here. You see, in the Old Testament, many places it says that 
Although Israel is like the sand on the seashore, only a remnant will be saved. Who is that remnant? That remnant are the people that are born of the promise of God. Those that are born of God. And it's not the natural ancestry of people that determines whether people are saved. It is whether they are born of God. Just as Isaac was born as a result of God's promise and God's miraculous work, so only those who are born as a result of the promise of the gospel and the miraculous work of the Spirit of God will be saved and will be able to enter the kingdom of God. Now, we've stated, we've had a look here at what Paul said, and we've, we've also seen, um, you know, just given some understanding to that. Let's now consider some of the implications of all of this. Number one, we need to realize that it is God who saves people. It is He who calls people to salvation. It is He who calls people to faith in Jesus Christ. You see, it's God who determines who will be saved and who will not be saved. It's not determined by our heritage or any natural thing. It's not determined by our works, whether they are good or whether they are wicked or bad. We need to realize that salvation is predetermined by God in Christ Jesus. Just as we've read here, these two men were, were chosen and rejected by God before they were born. It was, it was not based on what they did. Paul says it was based upon God's choice, and God's choice was based upon His purpose. So that's the first implication that, that we need to uh, note from this passage. Secondly, in spite of what we've just said, the doctrine of election does not mean that we will not have or that we should not have concern and love for those who are outside the faith and are resistant to the faith amongst our own kinsmen. In fact, I would say this, it's a godly thing for us to feel deep concern for the members of our families, and of our nation, of our own people that are not saved. It's a godly thing. Thirdly, the third implication, it does not mean that we should not be doing all that we can to help them see the light and be saved. And we see this in this letter. We see it in the life of Paul. Paul was the one who penned the words that we've just read. And yet in chapter 10 and verse 1, he said that he prayed earnestly to God that the Israelites might be saved. So Paul desired the Israelites to be saved. He prayed that they might be saved. And we also see that he was doing all that he could in his ministry to try and bring them to salvation. Whenever Paul went to a city, the first people that he went to were the Jews. And he would go there and he would do his best to try and persuade them to believe the gospel and accept Christ. And so they could be saved. And so what Paul was expressing in the first few verses of this passage was also seen in his life, in his actions. He was prepared to go to the Jews even though they rejected him more often than not and persecuted him as a result of what he was telling them. He still went to them. This was the, the, the depth of his concern for them. And shouldn't we have the same depth of concern for the members of our own families and our nation, our own uh, people and kinsmen? Shouldn't we have that same concern that Paul had where we will do everything that we can to try and bring those amongst us that do not believe to salvation? Where we will pray for them 
as Paul did with great earnestness and where we will be willing to share the gospel with them even if it means we get rejected by them and we become hated by them and even persecuted by them. This should be our desire. There should be a burning desire in our hearts to try and save the members of our families that are not saved and the members of our nation that are not saved. So even though the gospel, this is the fourth implication, even though the gospel does, does bring division between those who are not born of God and do not have faith and those who are born of God, in other words, us who do have faith, and these divisions will be found and experienced even within families and within nationalities, we must realize that we're still a part of those families and nations. The Apostle Paul, there was great division between him and his kinsmen. They hated him because of what he was preaching. They hated him because of the gospel. And they persecuted him because of it. There was a great division there. There was enmity there. Not on Paul's side, but on their side. And yet Paul did not divorce himself from the people of Israel. He still considered himself to be a part of that nation and uh, called them brothers and called them kinsmen. And so even with us, when we face rejection, when we face hostility, uh, persecution from members of our own families or members of our own nation, because of the gospel, we should still realize that even though there is division between us and them because of our faith, that there, we are still a part of our family, our natural families and of our natural nation. You see, what the gospel does is it brings those who believe into a new family without separating them from their natural family. So it brings them into a new spiritual family without separating them from their natural family. We are a very unique people. The people of God is a unique people. We have dual citizenship in the true sense of the phrase. Um, we are born naturally like everybody else. And so we're a part of a natural nation and we are born naturally as part of a natural family and yet we're also born again and that new birth brings us into a spiritual family and as makes us a part of a spiritual nation so we are very unique people with this dual citizenship we have a heavenly citizenship and yet we also have earthly citizenship we are part of a heavenly family that transcends all race and nationality boundaries and and all of that, and yet we're also a part of an earthly family. So I've given you these four implications that we can get take from this passage. And what would be good now is if you just spend some time as a group just discussing what we've read here, discussing this passage. Maybe you have some questions, and I'm sure there will be many questions, and there's probably going to be some objections to what Paul has taught here. And uh, Paul understood this, and as you'll see in verse 14, the very next verse that we'll be looking at, in the next, um, the next life group, um, you will see Paul begins to answer some of these objections because he knows that this teaching on God's election, God's choice, God's call, the sovereignty of God over who gets saved and who doesn't is going to bring about objections. Objections like this is not fair. God is unjust. And he's going to answer that. And uh, I'm sure that some of you have that kind of objection already to what Paul has been sharing here. But if you can take these four implications that I've raised and just, just discuss amongst yourselves how this applies to you as individuals. Maybe you can even spend some time just praying for members of your family that are not yet believers and just considering how 
you might go about being able to share the gospel with them, asking God for courage to do that, because it does take courage. Many times we need great courage to be able to share the gospel with people, our neighbors and with members of our of our nation and also even probably more so at times with members of our family. God bless you all.